scripture reading this morning will be taken from Hebrews chapter 11, 39 through 40, and then following chapter 12, 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 11, 39 through chapter 12, verse 3. I'll be reading out the King James Version. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Okay, good morning, church. All right. Boy, it's wonderful to be with you. We are nearing the end of our series on the book of Hebrews. We've got this week, chapter 12, and next week, chapter 13, and we will be moving on to a new series, but I'm uh, really excited about chapter 12 because the Hebrew writer is going to bring us into some of the most practical thoughts about all that we've been talking about up to this point. The last 11 weeks have been dealing with this deep and abiding understanding that Jesus is greater than anything you could ever imagine, anything you turn to for joy, peace, love, assurance, security, hope. Jesus is greater, and to miss him would be the greatest warning. And now as we come into chapter 12, he's going to bring us into some very practical thoughts. You know, one of the most sacred gifts that we have in the body of Christ is the gift of saints who, when nearing the end of their life, look back and tell us what life is all about some perspective from those that are older. This would be called the gift of wisdom. And if we who are younger have any sense about us, any humility, and any hunger to do life right, we will pause and listen. The Apostle Paul was a person who did this. You know, not every Christian gets an opportunity to gather him or herself, recognizing that death is imminent, collect their thoughts and deliver them back to us, those that are younger. But the Apostle Paul was able to do this, and his thought about life was summed up this way when he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. He said, this thing we call life is a lot like a race. It's a lot like a battle. It's a lot like something we war through and work through and work towards. Keeping faith is both an active thing and a difficult thing. You've got to struggle and wrestle to keep competing for that ultimate goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's not easy to be a Christian. Christianity calls us to trust God's promises over present, sometimes we think reality. It calls us to renew our mind and forego old thinking and have new thinking. It calls us to walk by faith, not by sight, to rest in the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. 
to choose to trust the sovereignty of God over our worry and anxiety, to be honorable with our words, to progress on our sanctification, and to learn how to have joy in Jesus and completeness in God. That is hard. It's the easiest thing available. Jesus said, my load is easy, my burden is light. And it is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Paul knows nothing of a Christianity where we just coast along. Neither does this Hebrew writer. In fact, the one major command that you heard from Gary as he read in chapter 12 of this passage as he's bringing this to a close, this whole discussion and study about Jesus is this. Run the race that has been set before you with endurance. Do not give up. Keep going. Keep fighting. I think the great temptation we face, especially in the time of uh, what seems to be some comfort, is that we can actually think we can coast our way to eternal life. This is the great temptation both of an aging Christian as we sort of get older and we kind of figure things out, as well as an aging congregation. This church is uh, coming up on 26, 27 years old, and that, in the scheme of life, is a pretty short span. But in the scheme of how long churches usually last, it's getting a little bit older. And one of the great temptations we will face is to transition into ministries that really just look like maintenance and service that just becomes routine. And familiar faces without any urgency to find a new face who also needs to hear about Jesus Christ and him crucified. The great temptation both of an aging church and an aging Christian is we must fight the danger of coasting. Coasting happens when we think Christianity is just some puzzle of performance that we've got to figure out. And once you put the puzzle together, you just put that on repeat until you die. And so we come here week after week, and we do the things that we know we're supposed to do, and we um, say the things we're supposed to say, and we just repeat that cycle over and over until this thing is over. God has not called us to run meaningless laps around the track. That's not what he's called us to do. He's not asked us to have, you know, without any purpose, just labor. That's not what he's asking us to do. He has called us to run a race, which means something that's been marked out for us to follow with great endurance on our way to an incredible reward. And our text this morning is going to give us really practical help with that. It's a greater motivation than you've ever found. The kind of motivation that we need when we hit rough patches in our work to uh, continue to fight this good fight of faith. And it's really simple. He's going to tell us to look backwards, to look upwards, and then to look forwards. You like how I did that? The Hebrew writer did it for you, but let's look at it. Number one, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We find motivation to run this race when we look backwards. Now, that doesn't always work itself out when you think about being a runner. I unfortunately ran um, cross-country and track. I didn't enjoy it. It was just the best thing I could do, and I could, wasn't good at anything else, so I had to do it if I wanted to have fun in sports. And so... One of the things you would never do is look backwards when you run. It slows you down. Did you know that? Looking backwards when you run makes you go a little bit slower, even though you want to know how far 
the competition is behind you, or if you're, in some people's cases, make sure the four-wheeler that's at the end of the cross-country race isn't hitting you, you know? But either way, looking backwards always makes you go slower. But last week, I introduced you to an incredible group of people in Hebrews chapter 11. A group of people that have gone on before us in this life of faith. And when you choose to run this race, you join a company, a cloud of witnesses, so to speak, of people who now act as witnesses to us. Now, these people are not witnesses of us, meaning that they are up in heaven right now, peering down and watching us like spectators surrounding a racetrack. That's not what they're doing. They're not witnesses of us. They're witnesses to us. They're telling us something. And they're telling us two really simple things. Number one, they tell us this. The race can be done. It can be done. The Bible is full of examples of people who have lived by faith under incredibly difficult circumstances and with incredibly difficult characters. People that have had real problems. Think about David. He was a man who was an adulterer and a murderer. He finished the race. John the Baptist had kind of a weird personality. He was a strange dude. He finished the race. John Mark was a quitter. And yet he picked himself back up and he finished the race. Stephen was hated by everyone around him. He had no friends. Finished the race. Peter, fill in the blank what you want to say about Peter. Finished the race. Mary, the prostitute finished the race Rahab the harlot finished the race and then I start thinking about people not just from the Bible but those that I've known in my life that have had incredibly difficult circumstances those that have sat in this building with us before that have had difficult circumstances difficult challenges and yet they have finished the race and what they're screaming to us in their testimony is I know what you're facing is hard, but it can be done. You can finish the race. That's the first thing they say to us. The second thing they tell us is this. There's something better than just what you see. There's more than just the temporary. Abraham is an example of this. He left what the Bible says was his inheritance. His father brought him to a new land, and that was going to be his land, his inheritance. And God called him out of that inheritance to a land that he didn't know about, to a city that was not yet built, and the promise of a city that would have the foundation of God that would be his people's in 400 years that would never be his, he went out to it. The Bible tells us about Moses, who opted to suffer with God's people instead of indulging in the sin of Pharaoh's house. The Bible tells us about Sarah, who received power to do something she never thought she could do, bear a child in the older of her age. The Bible tells us about Joseph who rose in prominence to second in command in the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. This guy was powerful. He was prominent. He was important. And he was probably rich. And at the end of his life, he told his ancestors, when you leave this place, you take my bones with you. Do not let me be buried here. In a country where he was powerful and prominent and rich, he had a name there. 
And he said, I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried where the people of God are. Take me there. And so whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're fighting with right now, whatever circumstance or challenge you're facing is in front of you, the witnesses who have run before us are coming back and screaming at you saying, you can do it and something better is coming. So we need to look back. The second thing we need to do is to look up. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, he tells us that we need to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says this in verse 3, consider him. You see, we don't just look back at witnesses that tell us that we can do this. We look up to one who has done it already as well. We look up to Jesus. There's two ways we look up, and I want to show you this. Number one in verse 2 says that we look to Jesus. He tells us to look at Jesus two ways. The first one, he just uses the word look. This is different than the second one. But let me tell you about the first one. When he says in verse 2 that you need to look to Jesus, the author and finisher, perfecter of your faith, what he's saying in that phrase or that language is this. Take your eyes off of what you're currently looking at and turn them to something else. This is coming off of the phrase in verse 1 where he says, that you and I, to run this race with endurance, we've got to lay aside or get rid of all of the weight that's slowing us down and the sin that's tripping, up us, trip, tripping us up at our feet. You see, what it means to look to Jesus means to take your eyes off of, off of one thing and look to another. Instead of looking at your weight, which is not your sin always, your weight is just the thing that burdens you down, the thing that makes it hard to run the race. You notice he separates our weight and our sin. See, weight can actually be something that we perceive as good. But if it's standing in your way, if it's burdening you, if it's constantly taking up your mental energy, your physical energy, your wealth, your time, your resources, all of that, and distracting you from running your race, it's a weight. You see, the question we oftentimes ask about our life, our mind, our behavior is this question, is it sinful? And that's an important question. You should definitely investigate, is my action or my thoughts, are they sinful? That's an important question. But before you even ask that question, we should ask this, is it helpful? Because if what you're doing in your life right now, the way you think, what you listen to, what you watch, what you consume yourself with, if it isn't helping you, it's a weight. And he says, lay it aside. Lay aside your weight and lay aside your sin. It's kind of strange, but one of the reasons we can't get over our sin is we can't stop looking at it. We obsess over it, constantly thinking about it. And what the Bible here is telling us is, yes, you've got sin. He uses it singularly, meaning that there are usually very minimal amounts of things that surround you at every turn. He says it, it easily ensnares us meaning at every turn, every way that you turn, in every aspect of your life, there's probably one or two things that are there that just constantly trip you up. Things at the root level or the base level like pride and fear, insecurities, stuff like that that just constantly trip you up at every way that you turn. And he's saying, stop staring at those and lift your eyes. Look to this. When we look to him, we get encouragement. He is the example that life of faith can be lived. No one lived more closely to the will of God than Jesus Christ. 
and he experienced great difficulty because of it. And yet he lived by faith. He's the author, the one who showed us it could be done, and the finisher, the perfecter of faith. So we've got to look to Jesus, get our eyes up off of the weight and the sin that's in our life and look to him. But the second thing in verse 3 says is we've got to consider Jesus. Now these are different. These are different things. Looking to Jesus means take your attention away from the things that you struggle with, away from your sin, away from the things that burn your heart down, and lift them up and look at the example of Jesus' life, how, how doing the will of God, although experiencing difficulty, brought him joy and reward. Look at him. But also, consider him. There's something more there. You see, this is more than just a look to consider Jesus. This means that you reason about him. You ponder about him. It's like when you go um, to maybe to an art museum or you go to an art show and you look at a piece of artwork and the artist isn't there but you're staring at it and you look and you look and you look until you begin to understand the meaning of the artist. What was the artist trying to accomplish? It means you hang in there and you think about all of the different aspects of that thing until you understand its importance, its meaning. That's what it means to consider. When you consider Jesus, you move from a, pre from a premise, which means you just operate under assumption, a premise about Jesus, to a conclusion. You know who he is. When you meditate on his life, on the cross, on his suffering, and on his resurrection, what you'll eventually find out is that his life, his death on the cross, his suffering, the hostility that he experienced, and his resurrection was not just a race set before him individually for himself, but it was a race that he ran for you. That's what, you, that's what happens when you consider him. You begin to know not just what he did, but why he did it. And you begin to learn that he is, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection is not just the example set before you, but he's the substance of what you trust. You've got to consider that. Everyone in here is trusting something. And when you understand who Jesus is, you begin to see that he's not just a perfect example, but he's a perfect basis for faith. He's a perfect thing that you should trust. And when you consider Jesus, you don't just get encouragement, you get empowerment. His life is the most liberating, empowering truth you'll ever hear because without him, you and I are chasing all kinds of things to find meaning, significant worth, and value. But when you get Jesus, when you understand who he is, all of a sudden, all that begins to flow to you from him. Let me show you the third one. For us to get motivation, we've got to look back to the cloud of witnesses. We've got to look up to Jesus and consider him. But we've also, also got to look forward to what's ahead. When you look at and consider Jesus, you learn something about his motivation. Do you see this in verse 2? You learn something really unique about Jesus' motivation. What moved Jesus to live this life? What, what was really the driving force behind Jesus Christ saying, I'll go to the cross. I'll experience the shame. I'll be reviled and ridiculed by sinners. What motivated him? There's one word. Who for the joy set before him. Joy motivated Jesus to experience suffering, yeah. 
joy motivated Jesus. His primary motivation was joy. He was able to press through his greatest challenges because he was looking forward to a joy that would be eternal. He looked at his present circumstances and said, this is worth it. I'll go through this and even worse. I will do this, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I'll do this because I want that joy eternal. Well, what was his joy? His joy was not just seated at the right hand of God, but an opportunity to sit at the right hand of God with us. But what about us? What's your joy that's going to push you forward? Look in verse 39 of chapter 11. He says, in all these things, this list of those men and women who lived by faith, though they were commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God provided something better for us. You see, God wouldn't give to them before we got involved in this. He had something better in mind than just over and over, year after year, sacrifice for forgiveness. He had something better in mind. He said, God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Perfect. Wow. Verse 40 tells us that there is a joy that's in front of you. One that you have yet to experience in its fullest form. A joy that is a reunion with all the saints who have lived by faith, who have walked by faith, who have endured incredible circumstances with faith to say, this is worth it. You're going to reunite with all of them in the presence of God and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in a place of perfection where we will finally become perfect people. The key to unlocking our endurance is to look to an unfading joy set before us. And so whatever you're struggling with, get your eyes up and remember what's coming. An eternal home where you will be the best version of yourself and you will be reunited with the only person in this world who has loved you perfectly. Every human being in this world is starving to be cared for and loved. And it's great that we have people in our life like a spouse or a parent or church family or friends who give us glimpses of divine love, pieces of divine love. But if you expect divine love from them, you'll be disappointed. Try it in marriage, I dare you. (laughs) Try it in your friendships. Even try it in church relationships. If you expect perfected love from people, you're going to be disappointed. But you know that disappointment serves a purpose? That disappointment serves a purpose because it reminds you that there is a love for you that's already been on display, that's waiting to reunite with you, that will never disappoint you, that will never let you down. And so to the Christians here today, I'm telling you, you finally have what your heart has always wanted. And so take heart, Christian, today. Hang in there. Don't give up. Keep fighting the fight. You can do it. It will be worth it. Because Jesus told us this. I've already overcome the world. So what you have to do is not overcome the world, but just run your race. And you'll run your race by looking back to those who are telling you you can do it, looking up to Jesus as both your example and your substance of faith, and looking forward to the joy that's going to be brought to you when we meet him finally in this place he calls heaven. So examine, number one, what you're looking at, and number two, determine to get your eyes on Jesus Christ so that you can have faith. If you need to respond to the call of faith, you can come as we stand and sing.